Welcome, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast here live at Ingle Studio. I'm your host, Dom DiTola, and my co-host... Chris Quinn. All right, and today we got a really special episode. I mean, a really good one. We're getting into the AFL, the American Football League. I'll say this. The research for this... I wouldn't say it got me hard, but it definitely got me wet. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, I ruined a couple of pairs of pants over the research of this. Oh, I bet. I bet. And I uh, got some good personal stories from my dad, actually, awesome. on uh, the history of this league. But I uh, just want to jump right into yeah, it. Yeah, let's get in. I'm just too excited. No more banter. Let's talk AFL. All right. So we're talking about the AFL, the American Football League, uh, 1960 to 1969, which in my opinion is one of the most important upstart professional sports leagues in American and possibly even world world history to be quite honest oh yeah there's other leagues that copied it i mean we'll get into it we'll we'll, we'll get into it but uh kind of the framework and the history behind this is um by the 1950s um american sports were kind of relegated to the uh eastern time zone and uh, what you started seeing in especially in baseball was a lot of teams especially with two or towns with two teams they started moving kind of into the central uh, mountain and Pacific time zones. New markets. New markets, exactly. Like yeah. the Braves didn't do well in Boston. That's a Red Sox town. They moved to Milwaukee and had success. The St. Louis Browns, you can't compete with the Cardinals. They moved to Baltimore and became the Orioles we know today. Yeah. And the Giants and Dodgers, they left New York. They went to California for greener pastures. For greener pa- And it's yeah. worked out. I mean, and uh, also by the end of the 1950s, um, at about the same time the AFL started, which kind of coincided with it, they tried to start a third baseball league, pro baseball league, called the Continental League. Now, I'd, I'd never heard about this. Yeah, it was uh, Branch Rickey and a bunch of kind of millionaires in, uh, you know, in a lot of AFL markets who wanted pro baseball. And um, it scared Major League Baseball enough that they put a team in Houston and they started really expanding. You know, Dallas wanted a team. Buffalo wanted a team, never ended up getting one. But, you know, a lot of these AFL markets, the Continental League scared them. And uh, what came about was a uh, son of an oil magnate named uh, Lamar Hunt, who lived in Dallas, watched the 1958 NFL title game between the Colts and the Giants. A big football fan from Texas, obviously, and uh, saw the... uh, wonderment of tv and watching the nfl and said i'm gonna start my own nfl or my own professional football league well and i think what the mlb expansion did is it proved that professional sports could happen in these markets in dallas and these you know houston houston in these markets that before were thought as as second or b markets or you know what i mean like minor league teams could survive there but not major sports teams and then that's when, because the NFL was completely against expansion. Yes, and they really took advantage of that. So when the league started in 1959, they had a group of cities. Uh, 1959 for the 1960 season. They had a group of cities, uh, Denver, uh, Dallas, Oakland, Los Angeles, a second team in Los Angeles, which was the Chargers. Um, you also had New York, a second team, which eventually became the Jets. Yep. Buffalo. Boston didn't have a professional football team. They were Boston through the old AFL days, the Patriots. Patriots. Houston. And um, uh, yeah, you had your your eight. Yeah, I was going to say a couple of fun facts with that was it just cost, if you wanted to franchise one of these teams, it just cost the guys $5,000 to get in. Yeah. So like you pretty much had to be in this group. Five million, yeah. Uh, Well, it cost them $5,000 to get in. Oh, yeah, to buy in to buy in and then they had to invest something like five million or you know what i mean like yeah. there was an, uh, an agreement that they would invest a ridiculous amount but literally to get in to buy into a franchise they were just asking like as little as they could because they knew how much money they would have to invest in the teams in the stadiums in the advertising you know exactly like it was an uphill battle and the nfl saw this and a couple of things i want to point out is um the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, they were like one of the go-getters. They wanted to be in the AFL. They had just gotten the Twins after the Senators and moved um, from Washington in baseball. Yep. But the NFL saw this and said, oh no, this could actually work. They convinced the Minneapolis ownership that they wanted a team, so they went to the NFL. And the second that Lamar Hunt, who owned the Dallas Texans, later to become the Kansas City Chiefs, and I'll get into that later. Yep. They saw that 
crap their pants and against the wishes of one of the crappiest people, he makes Donald Sterling look like Jesus, everyone. George Preston Marshall, okay, the owner of the Redskins, he saw his team as the South's team. Yeah. He didn't want any expansion into Dallas, but, you know, Texas football, really, that's what you got. Um, they put together the Cowboys, the NFL, they put an expansion team like right quick. I was going to say in the span of like a couple of months. Yeah. Because they saw that that market was juicy just like the minnesota one and they gave the they gave the an expansion to minnesota but the the dallas one that was i think the most i would say egregious towards the afl because yeah taking the minnesota team was pretty bad but like pretty much going in and, and killing one of their biggest markets that was and they they did it as a screw job to lamar hunt oh for sure and lamar hunt um, they call the AFC Championship Trophy the Lamar Hunt Trophy for a reason. Kansas City wears the old AFL logo patch on their jerseys now. Like for it is a, a proud yeah. history. And the NFL specifically did that to, uh, you know, give an Uncle Slippy Fist to Lamar Hunt and tell him that they're part <laughs> of the not fucking around crew. Yeah, they were. They were like, you can start this league, but you're never going to be on the same level as us. That's what they were trying to put out to the world. Yeah, and that was kind of... The thing is Lamar Hunt and um, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, Ralph Wilson, who was a minority owner in the Lions, Hunt wanted a team. He tried to buy the Chicago Cardinals at the time a whole bunch of times, and it just never panned out. And he's like, there are only like, they're only playing 12 game schedules and there's only like 12, 14 teams in the NFL. I want a team. And what he did after one of those failed meetings with the Cardinals, he wrote up a business plan for the league to create a football league. Yeah. Yeah. And he got his buddy Bud Adams, who was the owner of the Houston Oilers, later the Tennessee Titans, um, controversial figure as well. Uh, Bob Housem in Denver, um, Harry Wismer in uh, New York, uh, who started the Titans, later Jets. I mean, they got all these guys together, and they said, "Let's see where this thing goes." Yeah. Well, they. I think they saw that they could have these open markets, and they could survive off of these highly attended games because this was before the tv contracts were coming in in such big yeah but we will get into the tv contracts because that's gonna that puts the fear in them fun oh sorry fun fact uh the first owner of the los angeles later san diego now los angeles chargers was paris hilton's grandfather baron hilton and he was a a credit card magnet (laughs) magnet and that's why they're the chargers exactly that was literally the fact i was about to bring up that was my that was my other little uh tidbit fact on the (laughs) on the originals you know right on man yeah i love those i love those little like uh al davis was the the assistant coach or what you know what i mean just those little facts that you're just like oh wow this really built from the bottom up because afl's first season they weren't First few seasons, First it was a seasons. struggle. It was a struggle. They had players that wouldn't necessarily have made these teams, you know, in 67, 68, 69. Yeah, and that, that was the thing is um, it was kind of helped out because the NFL was so small. So you had a large talent pool who could play professionally but just wasn't getting a chance, yeah. particularly at the quarterback position because you had guys like Len Dawson who flamed out. He's in the Hall of Fame now, who flamed out in Cleveland and Pittsburgh. George Blanda, the all-time points record holder until maybe like 15 years ago mm-hmm. for the Oilers. You had um, you know, players of that caliber like John Hadle for the Chargers, awesome player. You had um, even guys who guy played for the Bills and the uh, Raiders, Daryl the Mad Bomber, LaMonica. Yeah. And they took what they basically understood was we got to get fans excited. We got to get people excited. So it was a downfield type of just passing game. Yeah, it was very, very passing. And it was these second and third string NFL quarterbacks that had only played maybe like 20 plays or, you know what I mean? They, they yeah. just really weren't given their shot. And AFL were like, hey, we'll give you your shot. And, and, that, and it's a passing game. And they're like, oh, okay. And you saw that kind of at the beginning of the league, not necessarily in terms of monetary revenue, but just like watchability is like the first two dominant teams of that league were the Houston Oilers with George Blanda. And you had the San Diego Chargers with Jack Kemp. Tobin wrote, call back to the Bobby Lane episode. We can get into that. Yeah, we will. And also um, uh, John Hadle. And they understood, you know, maybe these defensive backs aren't very good. 
let's load up on offensive talent and yeah. uh, get and the fans to come out. I'll, I want to talk on the Chargers for a second because I found this to be interesting. Um, the NFL and a lot of the AFL teams had a unwritten rule where they would have two, four, or six black yep. players to room on the road. To room on the road because they didn't want it to be like five black players, so one white player would have to room with a black player. Yeah, the Chargers, I think, were the first team to come in and be like. We're going to have more than 10 black players, and we're going to room our players by, by position. position. Yes. And, that, and they were talking about that making the team. It, Chargers were in five of the first six AF, AFL championships. They were in them, yeah. Yeah, they uh-huh. were not. Yeah, and the, were in the Chiefs won in 62 after the Oilers won the first two. Yes. Yeah. I'm just saying they didn't. They, they were a great team because they kind of had that. Before all these other teams. Well, that all that I um, from my research that all stemmed from their coach Sid Gilman. Yes. Who like everything you like about football in the passing game now can be traced back to him and to a lesser extent Paul Brown, honestly. And Sid Gilman, he was very discriminated against at the time because he was Jewish. This was uh, I couldn't even believe. So let's say why was he dis- or who was he discriminated against? By he was discriminated by the NFL, but also a lot of college teams uh, in the Big Ten, Ohio Big State. 10. Yeah, they pretty much said, "Hey, our fan base just is too racist to have a Jewish head yeah. coach." Like literally, that—that's what they told him, and he was just like, "Okay, okay, yeah, well, whatever." Sorry for you. I'm just gonna go get Hall of Fame wide receiver Lance Allworth and yes. dominate everything with Keith Lincoln and Paul Lowe in the running game off of that. Well, that, that's what a great coach he was, was he saw every team's, like, he saw where they had holes and yeah. he pretty much attacked those holes. Oh, yeah. The passing game. A the, very sophisticated yes. type of thing. And the cool thing about the AFL, if you didn't know, um, I had actually saw this on one of Peyton Manning's summer school type things. He was throwing all the balls the NFL has had over the course of their history. Okay. And the AFL ball was a little bit different than the NFL ball. And when I say that, it was a little bit longer and a little bit thinner. So, I mean, you're around the same age as me. Do you remember those old, like, Nerf footballs with the tails on the end of them? Yes. With that, like, whistled when you threw them? Yep. It was kind of designed, not with the tails and shit, but, like, it was designed like that. A little bit more aerodynamic. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it really supported the passing game. Yeah, that's awesome. But uh, back to the uh, kind of financial stability of the league in the uh, earlier days. Um, bit of collusion going around. A little bit. Um the Oak team based in Oakland, which was originally named the Seniors before changing to the Raiders, which is just so perfect. Some of the names of these original teams, you're just like, what were you even thinking? Yeah, like yeah. Uh, New York Titans. Glad they changed that one. Yep. But uh, so they were bottoming out in 62. I mean, all the teams were losing money. I mean, they were really struggling to get people into games. You could yep. count all the people in the crowd you know, when you went in and were on the field. But Oakland was financially failing, and their owner was just going to tap out, not even move the team, just fold. Yeah, he was folding the team, essentially. And uh, Ralph Wilson, the Bills owner, he died maybe about only 10 years ago. I mean, he owned the team forever. He gave him a $400,000 loan to keep him afloat so they'd have eight teams, so they could continue playing. And he was like, we're all in this together. And before that, the Raiders owner was kind of like, this is a foolish club. That's what he called it, a foolish club. Yeah. Because everyone was losing money. Like uh, Lamar Hunt, they had asked his dad, like, how do you feel about your son losing a million dollars this year? And he's like, well, a million dollars is bad, but he can go 150 more years of losing a million dollars and he'll be all right. Yeah, exactly. And Hunt came out and said that. He was just like, I yeah. wish I was losing that. Like, I wish I had that kind of, you know. Right. Those numbers were at all accurate, which they weren't. But they were still losing a lot of money because they were essentially buying some better players. So this is like yeah. 62, 63. And the, the kind of the, the one important player that they got in 1960, their inaugural season, was the 59 Heisman Trophy winner, Billy Cannon. Yep. The Oilers drafted him as well as the, um, I believe it was the Los Angeles Rams. And he had agreed to contracts with both teams. I don't know why. You'll see a lot of that kind of down the road in the NFL-AFL rivalry. But uh, a judge ruled that he could pick his team. Bud Adams, the you know Houston owner, 
go big or go home, paid him more. And he became one of the first stars. He led yeah. him to the first two championships. And he had that cannon. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a great running back and a great receiver out yeah. of the out of the um, backfield. Great kick returner, great punt returner. I mean, he was an electrifying player. I was going to say, back when players played so many positions where he really ran everything that they had. Yeah. He, so. was, he was like a Swiss Army knife type guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like all those Patriots running backs you see now, basically. But they were saying that Oilers essentially paid him twice what the Rams were offering him and that's why yeah that's why he went and it's one of those things where I bet they were playing on paying on average less for these you know utility players but for their stars they were really forking out a lot of cash yeah and they had great leadership at the top though from their commissioner I don't know if you saw anything about him Joe Foss yeah. he was a World War II uh hero as a pilot in the Pacific and governor of South Dakota. And they're like, we need some name recognition. We need like a solid dude to run it. And he really kind of helped the ship going with all of these other teams, even though they were struggling, like uh, particularly teams in two markets, because the Chargers, after one season in LA, that's a Rams town. They moved yep. down, down the coast to San Diego. The Titans for their first three seasons, the New York Titans, you can't, you can't beat Big Blue. You can't beat the Giants no. in a marketing battle until later, which we'll talk about a very important AFL figure. They stuck and stayed, but it was really a difficult time financially for these people to attract, you know, fans when the NFL was just calling it a Mickey Mouse league and disparaging everyone at every turn. And the saddest part was that in Dallas, the Cowboys were really bad their first three years. They were awful. Because of their fly-by-night Let's put an expansion team, yeah. barely an expansion draft. Let's put one there. And the Dallas Texans coached by Hall of Fame coach Hank Stram with Lenny Dawson and all those other guys. They won the 62 championship. And months after winning it, they had to move to Kansas City. They didn't Which want to. Which is crazy. They were the more popular team in Dallas. Yes. But Hunt was like, look, I have to do it for the good of the league. Kansas City wants a team. We got to pack up and go. And that market was open. And the Dallas market... I mean, was theirs, but wasn't as open. I saw something that was pretty cool because the Cowboys used to play on Friday night. And if you brought a ticket stub to yep. your local <laughs> high school game to the to the Sunday game at the AFL game, you got him for free. And I love that. So you, if you pretty much had proof that you didn't go see the Cowboys, you got him for free. And, and teams would do that. They wouldn't play games on Sunday like the Patriots would play on Fridays. Yeah. Because they could everyone in New England at that time, there was no team. They're rooting for the Giants. Oh, yeah, for sure. There, there was no loyalty like it is now. It was very much like these big markets had ushed, like pretty much the whole East Coast. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it was very much, it was not like New York rooted for the Giants and Boston and, you know, New England, yeah. that kind of thing. It was very, it was very, um, if you were into football on the East Coast, you're almost a Giants fan. And uh, I talked to my dad about this. Um, he's uh, 66 now. So he was a kid when they put the Broncos in Denver. Oh, okay. And it was the first professional sports franchise Denver had ever had. And everybody just went nuts because there was a pro team yeah. in Denver. And the reason I say this, this is another funny story he told me about. I don't know, but you need to Google... Denver Broncos 1960-1961 uniforms. Oh, they're the best uniforms because they're oh, the worst man. uniforms. They, exactly. They're mustard brown or mustard and brown yep. with mustard and brown striped socks. But the stripes go vertical. Yes. It's the it, weirdest yeah. thing you'll ever see. It's crazy. I love it. And I love it because I'm a Padres fan and I love those colors. Oh, but yeah. like the uniforms themselves are so ugly. <laughs> when, the, when the players took the field, the opposing team would literally make fun of him. Yeah. And it, it, that he was like, that never happened in my entire football career. Yeah. Like, and they, you just have bad. These, yeah. You just have these ridiculously looking team. You yeah. Know? And I mean, you, you see a lot of that, like the Oilers had like the baby blue and white. Yep. And, you know, the New York Titans were like a dark blue and yellow. Before. And then you see a lot of copying, a lot of yeah. the, uh, the, I think the Bills were originally the Lions color, the, the silver Because of Ralph blue. Wilson, because yeah. Of he Ralph brought Wilson. a lot of yeah. Lions relationships with him. And then when he went red, white, and blue, a lot of the Buffalo was like, all right, we'll get into that. Yeah, it's it's right? such a great marketing tool that a lot of these AFL teams used where they were like, hey, we're a new team now. Yeah, the Raiders looked like the Saints before 1963. Exactly. They, before they went to silver and black. It was this, this realization in 62, 63 that 
we they shouldn't be anything like the NFL. They have their own their own market, their own, you know, fan base now. Yeah, and uh the reason I brought that up though was my dad was telling me when they oh, changed yeah. their uniforms, what they ended up doing, the team had this event where the public came out um and everything and they had a bonfire and burned all of the old Bronco uniforms. <laughs> I love that because there's there's like it's rare to ha- see one of those uniforms now. Yeah, I mean, they, when the AFL had its 50th anniversary back in 2009, they uh, brought those out, and it was just like, oh man, oh, so bad. And the Patriots kind of had first they had the tri corner hat, then they had the whole Minuteman hiking the football. Yep. Like, I mean, that one lasted forever though. The Minuteman hiking the football, yeah. yeah. And you could still see you still see those out there. Yeah, the the NFL has rules now where you can't change your helmets, so a lot of the throwbacks are kind of, you know, you got the kibosh on them, but yep. you know, it's that was the time, that was the style. Yeah, that was, that was the style. The, <laughs> I don't know if the Broncos were definitely necessarily no. a style. That's why I love about whoever came up with those, like god, they must have just been like, uh, I'm sorry." <laughs> yeah, and um their first quarterback, Frank Trapuca, he had played at Notre Dame. He was kind of older, you know, an NFL veteran. He was on the coaching staff. Oh, I love that story. And the quarterbacks were so bad in that first preseason that the co- the head coach was like, why don't you go in there and take some snaps? And then he ends up being like an AFL all-time leading passer by the time he's done. Yeah, I think he played four or five seasons. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Like, literally, he had retired. He was the assistant coach. And I think the first half, they had zero completions. And he was like, just get in there and do some, and he was just like, yeah. "All right, I'll do it." Yeah, like, I can I still sling it. To do. Yeah. I got a couple beers in me. Let's exactly, make this happen. But uh, you know, you by sixty three, sixty four, though, what you started seeing was like a lot of these teams and a lot of these innovative coaches, like a Sid Gilman. The teams are getting pretty good. Yeah, and getting pretty competitive. And I say nineteen sixty three is the most important year because in that year's AFL championship, the Chargers beat the New England Patriots at Balboa Stadium. Jack Murphy hadn't been built yet. They beat them 51 to 10. And New England had like the most dominant defense in the AFL. Yeah. Just absolutely crushed them. And people were talking about that year after that game. You know, they've interviewed a lot of Charger players and said, oh, what do you think would have happened if you would have played this 63 winning Bears team? You know, three yards, clouded oh, yeah. dust, George Hallis, and like, we would have kicked the crap out of them. Mm-hmm. Our, our passing game was so sophisticated, we would have kicked the crap. In, in fact, on their championship rings, it doesn't say AFL champions. It says world champions. That's awesome. And because they dominated and because it was televised, people started saying, like, we want these leagues to go at it one day. Yeah. Like, we really want, to, want these leagues to go at it. That thought of, well, what if became, mm-hmm. like, well, why why wouldn't they do that? Yeah, and it kind of gave the league a little bit of a boost of confidence. And 63-64 was also very important because the New York Jets were bought because Harry Wismer, for all the good that he did as far as getting radio contracts and promoting the team, it just wasn't working. He was bankrupt. Yeah. And the league needed New York. They needed that market to like kind of, you know, tell everyone we're legit. They need they said they needed a flagship team in New York. Even mm-hmm. even if it was a lesser team to the Giants. That, exactly. That's what a giant market uh, New York really is. And the cool thing about that is is um, showbiz magnet Sonny Warblin bought the team. And he was part – He I think he was Jackie Gleason's manager. He knew everyone in New York. He was like, let's put some glitz and glamour on this. Yeah, let's make it a show. And he got a new stadium for him. That was the other big thing for the AFL. They started getting new stadiums. They were smart because the NFL was playing in older, decrepit ones, and they're like, okay, we're making some revenue finally. Let's you know get people out to the ballpark. So he got them at uh, Shea Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's Flushing Meadows. Yeah, over in Queens. Um, they called them, they renamed themselves the Jets because it's between both LaGuardia and Idlewild airports uh, in New York. Um, new color scheme, the green and white that you see today. Yep. And then by, uh, I believe it's 1965, 1965, and we can go back to the television contract. They uh, were kind of in bidding wars for players with the NFL. That's when they had separate drafts. Yep. And because it's New York, because you need a star because you don't have a quarterback and because your owner has a lot of deep pockets, they lured Joe Namath away 
from the St. Louis Cardinals. I was going to say, and this is where we get the first real giant star in the AFL. Because I feel like there were stars before, but then I feel like Broadway Joe really transcends football. Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here. And uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. Yeah, Broadway Joe. I mean, there's no, no, nothing else to say. Yeah. They doubled St. Louis's offer and gave them a brand new car. Their owner said, go out in New York. You're single. Do whatever. Meet yeah. people. Get people to go to the games. Like, he, he be got, a personality. He got women into the game. Yes, That was he another did. thing. Yeah. Where women before were not into, they were into professional baseball, but they were really not into professional football. Yeah. And I think this is one of the first, you know really handsome quarterbacks that used to have his helmet off all the time and they used to show him on TV a bunch. And, oh, yeah. And that was... Him dropping dimes to yep. Maynard and Soured on the outside, letting Boozer and Snell run it up the gut, and they hired Weeb Eubank, who in that 1958 championship game and the next season, too, was world champion coach with the Colts. Yeah. And uh, one thing I wanted to get to as part of that 64-65 kind of thing was the TV contract. I know you wanted oh, to yeah. talk about that in on uh, January 29th, 1964. Well, this is what I feel like put the real fear into the NFL. Yes. So they really were, at that time, they were like, AFL probably won't last a couple more seasons. That was their mm -hmm. thought. Because they were hemorrhaging money. Yes. And it was obvious that they were. That yeah. was the thing. They weren't selling out stadiums. They weren't you know, doing all the things that you need to do as a, as a franchise. Um, but then NBC came in mm -hmm. because CBS had the rights to the NFL and NBC was like, well, we have to, we have to challenge that. Why which, not? Why wouldn't they? Exactly. So now they're, they have AFL games and the revenue from that. Exactly. $36 million. And, um, Art Modell, the Browns and later Ravens owner, much vilified individual said, mm -hmm. Well, my God, they've got us now. Yeah. And then Art Rooney, the Steelers owner, said, uh, looks like uh, they won't have to be calling us Mr. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of these interesting things where with the revenue came in, they had equal share on it. And um, I think it was Hunt who... Yeah, the equal revenue thing. Who saw the, the way that MLB had it. So it, it games in New York that the Yankees played, the Yankees took all the revenue. Mm -hmm. And the Cleveland Indians owner at the time said, hey, we should be sharing this Bill revenue. Bill Beck, we got to do an episode on him. I My know. God. That's a, <laughs> we should be sharing this revenue because we're the other team on this field. Like, yeah. why wouldn't we share it? And literally, he was vilified as a, he, they were like, you are a socialist. Yep. <laughs> you are a communist. Like, it was... The backlash from that was crazy, but it showed Hunt that was like, hey, if we want to make this a viable league, we need revenue sharing to be equal. Because like with Ralph Wilson's boosting up the Raiders, you need everyone in it together. You can't yes. have any lone wolves because if you're going to make it work and you're going to challenge the NFL, all hands need to be on deck. Yeah, you can't have one. You can't have a franchise fold because obviously they couldn't have seven teams, but yeah. you can't have one of these because if a franchise folded at that point i don't think they could have got another team going no it would have been who would have wanted to invest exactly. it would have been just like no looking at the past economic reports like let me let me see your books they would have been like why would i invest in this nonsense exactly and uh, then the tv deal comes in and then that mm -hmm. then we start seeing real not competition between them um because we don't get the super bowl yet but we see real like signing competition of players. Yeah. Um, one of the things you talked about before, it's kind of related to the signing players. I really wanted to emphasize about the AFL because I found it absolutely fantastic was it really gave chances to players of color oh, yes. to flourish. Um, Dallas, Texans, Kansas City Chiefs, that franchise was really at the forefront of scouting these historically black colleges and getting these really good players like, you know, Otis Taylor, Buck Buchanan, Willie Lanier, Bobby Bell, those guys. And they were um, had a black scout. They were the first team to ever have a black scout. Yep. And he kind of got the inroads into these schools and being like it was an exciting league for them because, you know, while society itself was still racist, it kind of gave a reprieve. You know, it, it gave them a chance to at least be like, I can do this job and someone's going to give me a chance. Well, the NFL wouldn't scout more than two or three black players. Yeah. 
And literally, I, I think it's Kansas City in 66. Mm-hmm. Um, the coach came out and said, I don't care what color he is. I don't care where he's from. I don't care what country he's from. I just, the only thing I care about is that he's the best player at that position. Can and he play? Can he play? Yeah. And it's one of those things where you see the Chiefs through, I think, 65 to 69 were the best team in the AFL. Yeah, they really were. And be, because strictly of scouting. And there was another moment. It was the 65 um, AFL All-Star game. Oh, yeah. In, in New Orleans. In New Orleans. Because New Orleans is trying to put on a show to say, I want an AFL or NFL team. That was one of the cities Lamar Hunt wanted to move to. Yep. New Orleans or Atlanta. And the NFL was like, team, team. Like, right off the bat. They wanted teams there because Lamar Hunt even considered the idea. And um, because New Orleans is segregated at the time, a lot yep. of the black players, led by Abner Haynes, uh, great running back for the Chiefs and the Broncos, um, were so felt so discriminated against that they walked out. Yeah, they walked out of the All Star game, so they didn't have an All Star game that year. They did, but oh, they okay. moved it to Houston. Oh, they moved later. it. You're right. Yeah, yes, they I remember moved that. it to Houston, and, and it got postponed. Mm-hmm. That's that's what happened. Not a lot of people showed up to the one in Houston, but they actually played the game, and yeah. these players stood up for you know basic civil rights. Exactly. Uh, Ron Ron Mix, a tackle for the Chargers, also in the Hall of Fame, was talking about they're on the bus ready to go, and one of the coaches gets on and looks at the bus and goes, where are all the black guys? Oh, I love that. <laughs> Literally, it's like, where are the black players? And they're like, oh, no, they, they, took a, they took a knee for this one. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was the kind of their version of taking a knee. They, yeah. they all just boycotted the game. And some of them felt some backlash. Abner Haynes was, Haynes was traded almost immediately after it. Which is crazy. Funny, funny story about him. I, that was exactly where I wanted to go. I, this was, might be my favorite story. So at the time... You didn't have a common draft. You didn't have a common draft until 66, mm-hmm. right? Abner Haynes was drafted by the Dallas Texans, but also by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Abner Haynes is hanging out at his house, and who comes to his door but Bobby Lane and head coach Buddy Parker of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it's like 5, 6 at night. Yeah. And they are completely <laughs> hammered. Like, we're talking Bobby Lane trashed. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, they've been drinking for multiple days on end kind of thing. Like, they're leaning into each other. Yep. Is what he said. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, no, they're like literally holding each other up. And they're like being what a couple of drunk assholes are doing, like probably being loud. and They were crapping all over the AFL. And what they don't know is Abner Haynes' dad, I think, was a minister. Yep. And he was like, yeah, you're not going to Pittsburgh. No, I, I love it because Haynes, he's like, my dad was like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, big black guy. And he was not into joking around. No. And he saw these guys and they were completely hammered. They're like, you're coming to Pittsburgh. And he just goes, no, he's not. <laughs> like that was his response. And that was kind of, I think that was what led to the AFL almost succeeding was that the NFL had zero confidence in the pocketbooks or the ability to acquire talent of the AFL. Yeah. They just looked at it like they underestimated them. They completely underestimated them. And by 1966, what you saw happening were these enormous bidding wars for players and players probably were getting bigger contracts than they should have. Yeah. For the time, for the time, like Tommy Nobis, instead of going to Houston, he went to Atlanta because they offered more money. Gail Sayers and Dick Butkus were drafted by the AFL. They ended up going to the Bears, and George Hallis was a notorious penny pincher. So by 1966, the NFL was scared because they're like, we're shelling out money hand over fist. Yeah, and losing top talent. So it's both. So they're paying more for, for a shittier talent pool. Yeah, and they're scared. So they're so scared that Cowboys general manager Tex Schramm and Lamar Hunt, on April 7th, 1966, decided to have a little meeting at Love Field, Dallas Airport, by the Texas Ranger statue. I love that. It's just like, we'll just show up in this random like in this random airport and just be like two guys deciding the fate of the biggest sports league in, in America, in the world. So they start, uh, they start talking turkey. They start talking turkey before the 66th season. And Schramm finds out that Lamar Hunt is on his way to Houston for an AFL meeting. And this is a very important meeting because who does the AFL elect commissioner after Joe Foss retires? So I wanted to talk about this. Do you think the meeting had any influence on before, before we get into who becomes commissioner? Yeah. Because 
well, let's just say who becomes commissioner is probably one of my favorite people in football is Al Davis. Yeah, the guy that wore the black hat who always the the ultimate underdog. Like you were saying, kind of he had every coaching position. He, yeah, general he went, manager of the Raiders and now commissioner. He went through the entire every rank that you could go through at, in football. He played in college. He coached throughout. He pretty much was every coaching position. And then he was the GM. Now he's the commissioner. Then he becomes an owner. Like I, I just yeah. love his his resume. It's yeah. one of my favorite. The you can. There are a lot of negative things to say about Al Davis, but oh, that man's sure. work ethic and just like resolve to one up everyone who screwed him over is just beautiful. Well, that's why I think when he became commissioner and NFL really had that fear in him, he attacked. Yeah, he put the fear of God into the NFL and it was for one reason and one reason only because at the time, this is post-1965, so the Bills had won the 64 and 65 AFL championships. A big reason why they won outside of their dominating defense and Cookie Gilchrist just absolutely destroying people running the ball, Jack Kemp throwing it, was they had a kicker named Pete Gogolak. And he actually revolutionized the way kicking was. So he, I think he was, he was the first soccer style kicker first ever in the style. NFL, and, and he was very accurate. Well, you you could see what that was over the the toe poke that everybody was doing. Yeah, like Gino Capaletti was a great kicker and a great wide receiver for the Patriots. He was a straight on kicker. Yeah, he loved Pete Gogolak. He's like, my God, you can actually do this. Exactly. <laughs> like, it was it, it was like um, when they started high jumping, and the guy does the high jump that everybody knows now. The Fosbury flop. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like that. You were like, wait a second, that that works. Yeah. And that's the way it was for the Bills. I mean, they had this kicker that was revolutionary, and NFL teams wanted him. Totally. Uh, a specific team wanted him. A specific team that was very jealous of Sonny Werblin and Joe Namath yes. wanted him. <laughs> the New York Giants. And this was, a lot of people put this as the moment where it all kind of changed. It was. It honestly was. Uh, I think this was the first time an NFL team went and picked up an AFL player. It was. And Al Davis has talked about this where he had said there was the unwritten rule you never sign another league's free agents. Mm -hmm. You never do it. And Wellington Mara went and did it. And his NFL owner, you know, associates uh, were not very pleased. Like uh, Carol Rosenblum, who owned the Colts, said, "Dude, if you want a kicker, I can. I could have given you a bunch of kickers." Yeah, I think the one person who was pleased was Al Davis. Yeah, because he saw that and he just goes, "Oh, thank God!" Because now it's open. It's on like Donkey Kong. And <laughs> AFL wasn't the first ones to do it. So like if AFL had come in and started sniping their free agents, I feel like a lot of people would have been like, hey, that's not right. But NFL, the top dog, came in and, and did this one play, this one <laughs> signing, and literally the... Because I don't even think the other owners in the AFL were really that excited. N no, I mean, Ralph Wilson was sad, but Al Davis saw, and this is how brilliant he was, he's like, you basically brought a knife to a gunfight. Exactly. Because the exactly. AFL was only, they were competing with NFL players who were coming out of college. That was it. That's where the competition stopped. Yes. Once you went to a league, that's where you stayed. Yes. But and Davis, in his mind, said, all right, let's go. Yeah, exactly. Like he was ready for war. That's why him becoming commissioner 65 and then this happening. 60, yeah. Si yeah. 66. And then this happening, the, the meeting in 65 or whatever, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. The, I feel like that meeting between the NFL and AFL really put it into place of the, like, Hey, this is going to be a war until we come together. So what Al Davis did was said, Oh, you're going to sign our best kicker. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have our teams, Sign your league's best players yeah, to not, futures contracts. I was going to say, not best kickers, not best wide receivers, best player across the board. Al Davis went and signed Roman Gabriel for the Raiders, a uh, good quarterback for the Rams back in the day. Bud Adams went and signed uh, Mike Ditka and jo John Brody, another quarterback. I so, think Mike Ditka coming over was a big one because there are these names that you kind of hear yeah. and they kind of reverberate. And that, that's one of them where you're like, oh, dang, that's going to. Exactly. Like some, some marquee names, like yes. more names. That's what you need. You need exposure. And Ditka um, or Bud Adams was talking about trying to sign Ditka. And he was, Ditka was like, well, 
I'm making over a hundred K here in Chicago. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I could leave. He's like, what if I doubled your salary to $200,000? And he's like, sold. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's where, so they had their own stars and then they're buying the NFL stars. And it scared the crap out of the NFL. It had to have because that's... Those guys wanted to leave. Exactly. You could see the power shift. Yeah. You know, and you could see the AFL bringing almost like a more exciting game to television. And now they're getting these stars, these defensive stars, these, you know, not just... I I hate to say it, but not just black players that NFL was overlooking. You you get a blanket of everybody. Yeah. You're You're trying. And I mean, yeah, they're trying to pick up the best players and you're, you're boxing the NFL in. they force the NFL to have a 14 game schedule. You're playing more exciting games because you have a two point conversion, which wasn't adopted till the mid nineties again, but, but they still had it in their league originally. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you have an exciting brand and now you're getting brand names to join you. Yes. And by that point, the NFL scared. Yeah. Well, to shake up the establishment, you almost have to have somebody from the outside coming in. But then I feel like in this 65, 66, that's when the AFL really becomes the, the marquee. The mar- like, it's weird because I bet a lot of NFL fans would talk shit on this from, this from that era. But I feel like if you were a casual fan, the AFL would be where you would go. It was because it was more exciting and less bland, for exactly. sure. Yeah. And, you know, by that point, the NFL scared. So what they do... And this, this is why Al Davis always has a thorn in his side. Shram and um, Hunt meet again, and they hammer out a merger behind Davis's back. Yes. Be- and they do a peaceful merger. And by peaceful, both the leagues come together. Three NFL teams move into the new AFC, where you have Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and uh, Baltimore moving to the AFC. Which originally nobody wanted to move. No. That Art, was... Art Modell took one for the team yep. based on the stipulation. He gets Wellington Mara to say yes, and he gets to bring Art Rooney with him to keep the rivalries going. Because what a lot of people don't know is in this era, the, NFL, the AFL had already brought in a new expansion team to Miami. The NFL won in Miami. Yeah, yeah, they brought in the Dolphins. And then by 68, you know, later, they get Paul Brown owning the Cincinnati Bengals. They promised him a franchise. The original owner from the Browns. Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. Owner do everything guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the reason this this merger always rubbed Al Davis the wrong way is it was kind of like a settlement. The AFL paid the NFL $18 million. You know, you're, you're part of the NFL now. The entire league merged, which I can't state enough how important that is. Yes. You went from eight to 10 teams and all of them get to go in. But they have this merger and Al Davis is mad because he didn't want to join the NFL. No. He wanted to be better than the NFL. Yeah, they almost, and I saw somebody say this, they wanted it to be like, um, baseball where it was the world championship you know what I mean yeah the, not the it was almost like they wanted to have two separate leagues and when this merger happened not only did the NFL teams not want to come over but a lot of AFL teams were like that's fine we'll keep our league our league you know mm-hmm. it, it, it's very it was very interesting merger yeah Al Davis um, he was quoted as saying uh, in war uh, the generals win the war but the uh, politicos take all the all the spoils from the piece. Yeah. You know? And yeah. that's that's what Hunt did. That's why the I mean, even up to that point, that's why the Raiders and Chiefs are such big rivals even nowadays. I mean, but you have a lot of NFL fans or old AFL fans, like my dad, you know, whenever there's a Super Bowl, unless the Raiders are playing in it, he always roots for the AFC team. Yeah. Always. Like that stuff runs deep for these people that really supported the league you know, during some of its darker days where oh, they're sure. losing money hand over fist. Yeah. Um, but then, so the merger happens, what, 67, 68? Uh, merger happens 66, 66 because that's the first year of the Super Bowl. Oh, which, okay, uh, yes. Yeah. Which, so this is what I wanted to get into. The first three Super Bowls. Yes. Oh, I'll talk about four, too, because that's important. I, wanted, I want to talk about, exactly, I want to talk about four, but for the first three the NFL pretty much are saying the AFL is a joke. Even the first though, two. Well, even though they win the third. Yeah. So, like, the first two, they pretty well, – the first one, they get blown out. The AFL uh, – I forget even who it was. It, it was, was the Chiefs and Packers. It was 14-10 to 10 at halftime, but and then, then the, the wheels Packers, came off. Yeah, the yeah. Packers at uh, 34-10 or something. 35-10, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was one of those things where you could see 
they were almost correct in that first first two Super Bowls where they were kind of mismatched. And then the Jets come along. And yeah. one of my favorite, this is probably my favorite Super Bowl, is the Jets and the Colts. And 19-point underdogs the Jets were to the Colts. And Broadway Joe says, I guarantee a win. So literally, they're looking to lose by 20. And let's let's not forget the Colts at that time that year went fifteen and one. They oh, destroyed yeah. their competition. Don Shula was their coach. Chuck Knoll, who later won Super Bowls in Pittsburgh, was the defensive coordinator. But what they hadn't seen was a sophisticated passing attack or offense that you could find in the AFL with a quarterback the caliber of Joe Willie Name. Well, that's the thing. There wasn't interdivisional play, so they literally were not seeing these this passing game. Mm-hmm. They weren't seeing the option. They weren't seeing these things that the AFL pretty much made their own, you know? Yeah, and what Namath did in that game, it's kind of an ugly game. I've watched it before. The Colts really could have run away with it, but they made a lot of red. I think they had four interceptions, including like three in the red zone. They missed a field goal. And the Jets just kind of stayed in the game with Namath kind of managing it. Yep. Matt Snell, who should have been the MVP over Namath, honestly. He scored um, the Jets' only touchdown, but... You know, they really controlled the clock, and Earl Morrill and was playing, who was the NFL MVP that year, not Johnny Unitas. The Jets had him down 16 to nothing until almost the end of the fourth quarter when Unitas came in and just too little too late. Yep. It's it's a interesting because I bet the Colts, if it was played, they say this, if it was played 10 games, they would win 9 out of 10. Or and eight they probably would have. And they probably would have. And that's why for the first three Super Bowls, everyone says the AFL was less than. Or yeah not the league wasn't even though they won that third one the league wasn't up to par yeah vince lombardi was quoted after the first super bowl he had won the first two against the chiefs and raiders and he said well that's a good football team over there but it's not the quality of the nfl yeah and the the thing about the afl players from researching this that i always love is even though they're on different teams they all loved each other because they were all fighting for that common goal and legitimacy like after the jets won yeah the kansas city players were like they're celebrating with them they were like hell yeah we won this yeah because that's i bet that's the way it felt because the way the nfl just constantly were beating them down yeah and they just kept talking mad trash you know and when the rubber met the road guess who came out on top especially in that game after such a bold prediction, and so many gamblers lost money. Oh, I bet. That was one of those games where a ton of people had to have lost money, and one or two guys made a shit ton. <laughs> uh, I think he was their linebackers coach or defensive coordinator. Buddy Ryan was on that Jet staff. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. that's awesome. He w- uh, he went to Minnesota later with the Purple People Eaters and then went to uh, the Bears and, you know, everything about that. Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, so let's get into the fourth Super Bowl and the Kansas City Chiefs. I think they are yeah. the team towards the end of this AFL. And they, um, they're an interesting story in 69 because, you know, they had won the AFL championship in 62 as the Texans. They had won in 66 uh, but lost to the Packers in that first Super Bowl. Yep. Kind of didn't get back. 67, 68 were kind of down years. But 69 they get in as a wild card. Like um, of, there was a 14 playoff. So in the Western Division they finished behind Oakland. So they had to go on the road to New York, beat Namath, and then go to Oakland and win on an incredible pass from Len Dawson to Otis Taylor, who was uh, signed by the Chiefs because they almost kidnapped him and told him to leave a hotel where the Cowboys were keeping him. Yeah, I love that story. It was such like shady shit going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. They were like, oh, man, we got a kid. They didn't say that, but they were like, hey, you got to stay in this room for the whole time. You know what I mean? Like, do not leave this room. (laughs) Do not not answer the phone. Yes. But... uh, so they go on the road to win these first two playoff games, and then they get in. I mean, you know, great defense. Len Dawson leading the offense. Good running game. Hank Stram, Hall of Fame coach, coaching them. And uh, the Vikings are almost a Colts clone from the year before. Yes. Just a very black and blue type team based on, you know, fundamentals, running the ball. Joe Cap's not like anybody's savior as a passing quarterback, but a good leader. But Well, this is this – is- because of their formation. So this is what I don't necessarily, I never grew up playing football and Mm -hmm. I, and I never really got into the X's and O's of it, but the Kansas city pretty much came up with a new formation, which was the option and, or like the motion of, yeah. Stram would run a lot of motion to, uh, you know, get defenses, not to stack too far to one side, a lot of misdirection in the running game with traps and counters and things like that. What he said was before the play starts, I want the defense to think. 
Yeah. Because a lot of these guys aren't thinking. They're just going out and being like, I'm just going to go, go, go. So everyone lines up where they're supposed to. Yep. Instead of, you know, really creating confusion. And that's what he and this Kansas City offense did with a lot of this was create confusion. Yeah, Minnesota and Minnesota, as good as those purple people eaters were, their defensive line was rather small. And when you look at all of their four Super Bowl losses to the teams they lost to, they were just outmanned in terms of weight. Yep. And you can see that advantage on film, and Kansas City took full advantage. Yeah. And, and I think that's when AFL became completely legitimized. Yeah, they, they won that second game. The merger was already going to happen in yes. 1970. They had set the merger for 1970, you know, AFC, NFC instead of NFL, AFL. The teams move everything. But that was like the cherry on top yes. of a 10-year journey one of the most incredible journeys in sports history for them to win 23 to seven and for Pete Rozelle to hand Lamar hunt a super bowl trophy for beating the NFL's best team Yeah, for a guy that mapped out a league on an airplane cocktail napkin. I was going to say, you couldn't write that story. That's why it was so great. He yeah. hunt did so many things for the league. And then literally the last pretty much super bowl, that would be an AFL victory was his yeah. i love it they come out on top and then they have to wait 50 years until patrick jesus mahomes comes along oh, to win man. another one he is so good god <laughs> so good <laughs> it, it, it just makes me a lot of this research has just made me want football to come back it, it's such an interesting um thing with this because when we started this podcast sports weren't going we were in the pandemic and yeah. all of that um, and I've been watching every single sport that's been coming on. I've, I've been into basketball since for the first time in like four or five years yeah. in the bubble. I, I've been so into it. Like my that's wife, so cool. my wife was like, we're not watching baseball tonight. I was like, what? <laughs> the, the Diamondbacks are playing the A's right now. What are we talking about? <laughs> like, it's such a, you know, that's so cool though, dude. Yeah. Like, um, I'll, I'll say one thing because this is kind of what I took away from the entire research and everything. If you look at the AFL, as a league, it is the ultimate, one of the ultimate American success stories. Oh, definitely. It's almost manifest effing destiny with that. It's guys who band together and say, this is the goal. This is what we want. And we're going to go out and achieve it no matter what hardships come our way and give a football starved public with TV coming up at the same time where it's just the most enjoyable sport to watch on TV and just being savvy enough to really drive it home and say, we've arrived. Take that, NFL. Yeah. It was it was a mixture of all these um, lucky cir circumstances. Oh, yeah. Like TV revenue coming in, they wouldn't have survived without that. Yeah. You know, just like, ah, I love it. It's, it's one of the best overall stories in sports. It really is. It needs to be appreciated. And like I said before, there's a reason why the Chiefs have the old AFL logo still on their jersey. Oh, yeah. Like, it means that much. Yep. And until all of those players are dead and gone, it'll mean something to somebody. Yeah. And that's us here at the Sports Experience Podcast. I'm Chris Quinn at C. Quinn Comedy. I'm Dom Ditola at Ditola Dominic. And we're always recording here at Angle Studio. That's E-N-G-L-E motherfucking studio. <laughs> You can cut that last part. I don't care. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs>